<clears throat> today is August 21st, 2022. Uh, Tasho today, um, my title is okay with things as they are. And let's work our way in here. Um, I think if we look dispassionately at our lives, we'll see what the Buddha saw uh, 2,500 years ago. We'll see a sense of dis-ease, uh, dissatisfaction uh, that runs through our lives. Sometimes it's not so obvious. To some people, it's, it's totally the flavor of everything they do. We all are in different situations. Somebody was talking to me recently, a month or two ago, and they said each day they just felt they had to get more done. They weren't getting enough done. Just have that. And it it awakened something in me. I, I know what they're talking about so easily to fall into that thing of there's so much I've got to accomplish, there's so much simple tasks I've got to do, uh, got to get it done, got to keep moving. A lot of people also struggle with feeling that they're just not doing it well enough, that uh, in one way or another they're a failure. It's a phenomenon I've read about called imposter syndrome, where somebody, you know, rises to some uh, position of power in their company or honor, and uh, but they know that they're full of flaws. <clears throat> Human beings, of course, they're full of flaws. We, we lose the ability to relax, to fully relax, to enjoy the moment, to live in this moment. It's always presenting itself. Instead, there is a tone of tension uh, that goes on around the clock. <clears throat> I think it goes away when we're in deep sleep. But it invades our dreams. We're, we're always trying to get to the next thing. There's this idea that if I can just do this or do that, I'll get to a place of rest. And if you look at your life, you may find that you never do. There's always something more to do, always something more to accomplish. <clears throat> it's not something that we're always conscious of. But it's actually kind of promising when we do become conscious of it, when we realize I'm kind of chewing tinfoil here. Uh, it's, it's, I'm, <clears throat> I'm just constantly struggling, putting on my little dance for other people so they'll like me. Uh, my, my daughter told me that uh, she kind of likes wearing a mask to Wegmans so she doesn't have to smile at people. <laughs> that um, inability or that difficulty that we have to settle into the moment, obviously that 
plays out in our zazen. How many people on the mat have spent time wondering when the round was going to be over or wondering when their mind was going to settle. Things were going to become clear, going to get back in a state they're used to or that they discovered once. It's, it's, and it's so counterproductive, <clears throat> if productive is the word to use, um, it's, it's to constantly be looking ahead. When we're doing zazen, we're immersing ourselves completely in this moment, exactly as it is. If our legs hurt, our legs hurt. There's tension. Just aware of the tension without wanting it to be different. Just breathing. To begin to <clears throat> make headway in your zazen, find is a place of refuge from all the doing, getting, and spending. Some poet said, Tennyson, I think. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Nothing, nothing we see of nature that is ours. This is a problem back when he lived, which I'm guessing 1700s, 1800s. Um, today, we've just doubled down on that stuff. Interruption, dissatisfaction, agitation, the spirit of our times. Bombarded with email and texting. How bizarre is it when you, when you think about <laughs> us old people, think about things we're like when we were young. If you went out in the country, say, went out to a cabin somewhere, you weren't having your phone go off every five seconds. We, we need to live with the world as it is. And for younger people who've grown up with <clears throat> iPhones and email, um, that's, that's their world as it is. But, but it does make sense <laughs> to find time to break free. So much impatience, so much anxiety, Study after study is showing that the uh, number of people in school, for instance, school children with anxiety has skyrocketed even in the last decade. It's the whole problem of your presence on social media. Everybody presenting their best selves trying to hide their weaknesses and fears. And then we're in this incredible cycle of outrage. It doesn't matter what end of the political spectrum you're on. Uh, if, you're, if you're, as they say, if you're paying attention, you're probably becoming outraged. So unhelpful. So much stress. And, and whether you have stepped out of it to, you know, a large extent or not, 
We're all here together in the same soup. This is the air we breathe. It's the world we live in. And many people, of course, take all this outrage and impatience and they turn it on themselves. They're living in a a world of constant self-judgment and comparison. Used to be, uh, as an example, uh, if you uh, were interested in skiing, you'd go out on the slopes and you'd goof around. You had horrible wooden skis that didn't really work that well. And you just had fun. And now so many people, uh, they want to be an expert. They want to be up to a certain level. Don't want to embarrass themselves. Lost something that we had when we were children. It's a quote from Henry Miller, the author. said, To be silent the whole day long, to see no newspaper, hear no radio, listen to no gossip, be thoroughly and completely lazy, thoroughly and completely indifferent to the fate of the world, is the finest medicine a man can give himself. A lot of people would hear this and think, how can you be indifferent to the fate of the world? Well, you can't always be indifferent, but I would ask if it's constantly, constantly bugging you, how helpful can you be? You can think of the example of sleep. None of us can function properly without enough sleep, especially deep sleep. Everything disappears. Not only are we indifferent to the fate of the world, there's not even a self anymore in deep sleep, dreamless sleep. And we wake up, if we've slept well, we wake up recharged and ready to engage. We have some capital. We have something we can spend. Have to take care of ourselves. Can't be continuously chasing after the next thing. For anyone who comes into Zen practice, learning to let go of our unconscious, driven compulsions is right up there on the menu. And we have to start by recognizing that something isn't working. People people come to practice because they realize things don't completely work one level or another. Why else would you do it? The change we're called on to make is really a radical change. Not to live in your thoughts. Who does that? Not to judge yourself. Not to judge other people. Not to run away when things get painful. To meet adversity with open arms. It's radical. No one wants to do that. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll have to admit, I generally resist opening my arms to what I don't like. 
have to recognize that when you recognize that something isn't working, walking into the same wall again and again. As they say in AA, if you keep walking into the same wall, you need to turn left or turn right. You need to do something different. And our go-to moves, the ones that aren't working, are repression and distraction. No, 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 no. When when your recovery period is distraction, you don't fully recover. You've just zoned out. You've gone numb. What you want to do is to come awake, free of tension. Just breathing. If we have the good fortune to have a real disaster, to have things really go off the rails, we may become miserable enough to do something about it. There's a, uh, a British clergyman from the 19th century named Sidney Smith who said, there's not the least use preaching to anyone unless you chance to catch them ill. How many people have gotten sick and when you recover, when you come back, everything is washed clean? It's the most wonderful feeling. It's almost worth, worth getting sick. I know in AA there's a lot of uh, mention of how you can't really uh, reach anyone who's struggling with addiction until they're hurting until they're ready I've seen a lot of people who uh, just staying on the the topic of, of drinking it's a good sort of metaphor for the, for thinking. <laughs> I've seen a lot of people who are able to sort of keep it under control. <clears throat> people in my family, for instance. Um, they drink, they don't get into terrible trouble. It gives them relief, and it eats up their days. In a way, you're luckier if everything falls apart. And you have to rebuild, have to start again. Of course, some people are clear-eyed enough that without a whole lot of suffering, they realize, no, this isn't right. I need to change. It's, it's kind of remarkable what it happen, when it happens. And I want to sort of uh, elucidate an example. There's a physicist named Richard Feynman, um, just a fascinating guy, um, totally, totally consumed with interest in the world and how things work, uh, you know, from his, from his youth. Um, this guy, for a while, was a, a player in a Brazilian samba band. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, he painted, he, he did all sorts of things. He and a friend uh, 
tried to organize a trip to Tuva, a little country between uh, the Soviet Union and Mongolia, uh, just because they were interested in the triangular stamps that Tuva put out. <laughs> There's a whole documentary about it, uh, which, uh, called Tuva or Bust. It's really, really fascinating. Anyway, at one point, um, our man, Richard Feynman, was in Brazil, and there were a bunch of people who lived near him who liked to go to bars, and you know he liked those people, and he liked to hang out with them, so he was going with them into the bars. He said the people from the airlines, these were people who were flying in and out of, uh, of uh, Buenos Aires, I guess. He said, no, that's Argentina. Well, <clears throat> whatever big city in, in, uh, in Brazil. Rio. Rio, there you go, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> said people from the airlines were somewhat bored with their lives, strangely enough, and at night they would often go to bars to drink. You know, I think when he says bored, strangely enough, he's not being ironic. I think to him it would be fascinating to be on a plane and see all the people that come through <clears throat> to someone who's just totally open, who's just taking it all in and seeing what's there. Life is fascinating. Um, you can you can get on the web and uh, see videos of him giving talks. It's just so, you know, no no question of him being a Zen practitioner or anything, but just really really interested and open and and uh, honest. He says I was uh, one day. He's, wait a minute. I liked them all, and in order to be sociable, I would go with them to the bar to have a few drinks several nights a week. One day, about 3.30 in the afternoon, I was walking along the sidewalk opposite the beach at Copacabana, past a bar. I suddenly got this tremendous, strong feeling. That's just what I want. That'll fit just right. I'd just love to have a drink right now. I started to walk into the bar, and I suddenly thought to myself, wait a minute. It's the middle of the afternoon. There's nobody here. There's no social reason to drink. Why do you have such a terribly strong feeling that you have to have a drink? And I got scared. I never drank again, ever again, since then. I suppose I really wasn't any, in any danger because I found it very easy to stop, but that strong feeling that I didn't understand frightened me. You see, I get such fun out of thinking. And for Richard Feynman, thinking is <clears throat> on an order uh, quite beyond that of us ordinary mortals. Um, thinking is a discipline for him. I get so much fun, a fun discipline, out of thinking that I don't want to destroy it. It's the same reason that later on I was reluctant to try experiments with LSD in spite of my curiosity about hallucinations. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just what I, what I respect so much about that is just how much he valued the life of the mind and how, how aware he was of how you can go off the rails. You know, somebody like him, it's easy to think, well, I can quit so easily. Drinking is not a problem for me. I was always able to quit drinking any time I took my mind to do it. But if you keep drinking, <clears throat> keep doing it again and again, it gets in there. It gets in there, and suddenly you don't want to quit. And, uh, and then all of a sudden your life has changed in ways that you did not intend.
I want to uh, read something from uh, our old friend Pema Chodron. She has a piece, it was taken from a book of hers and published in uh, Lion's Roar, the Buddhist magazine. It's excerpt excerpted from Practicing Peace, a book that was published in 2006. And they titled the article, or she did, I don't know, uh, Turn Your Thinking Upside Down. It really addresses the whole question of how do we deal with what we don't like. What does it mean when we encounter what we don't like? And she begins, on a very basic level, all beings think that they should be happy. When life becomes difficult or painful, we feel that something has gone wrong. This wouldn't be a big problem except for the fact that when we feel something's gone wrong, we're willing to do anything to feel okay again, even start a fight. <clears throat> It really triggers, triggers our stress reaction. I just, I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Robert Sapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Uh, it's just a fascinating book about the stress reaction in, uh, in people. Uh, <laughs> can't get into it now, but uh, we're willing to do anything to feel okay, and sometimes those things are just as subtle as spacing out, tensing up, finding something to criticize. <clears throat> and sometimes it's even start a fight. According to the Buddhist teachings, difficulty is inevitable in human life. For one thing, we cannot escape the reality of death, but there are also the realities of aging and illness, of not getting what we want, and of getting what we don't want. These kinds of difficulties are the facts of life. You could say we come into life and we begin to fall fall through our lives, and we die. She says, even if you were the Buddha himself, if you were a fully enlightened person, you would experience death, illness, aging, and sorrow at losing what you love. All these things would happen to you. If you got burned or cut, it would hurt. People sometimes think, if I can only come to awakening, then I won't have this suffering. It's not the case. There's still suffering. It's, it's, it doesn't have that extra edge of fighting uselessly against it, of wishing that things were different. But the enlightened person suffers just like anyone else. Anthony DeMello is fond of saying, before enlightenment, I was depressed. After enlightenment, I am depressed. <laughs> she says, the Buddhist teachings also say, that this is not really what causes us misery in our lives. What causes misery is always trying to get away from the facts of life, always trying to avoid pain and seek happiness. This sense of ours that there could be lasting security and happiness available to us if we could only do the right thing. In this very lifetime, we can do ourselves a great favor and turn this old way of thinking upside down. As Shantideva the author of The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life points out, suffering has a great deal to teach us. If we use the opportunity when it arises, suffering will motivate us to look for answers. Many people, including myself, this is Pema Chodron, came to the spiritual path because of deep unhappiness. 
Suffering can also teach us empathy for others who are in the same boat. Of course, that's openness to suffering. Many people are suffering grievously and uh, hate other people. Furthermore, she says, suffering can humble us. Even the most arrogant among us can be softened by the loss of someone dear. Reminds me of some of the uh, right-wing politicians who've had a family member who was uh, gay or not gender normal in some way. And uh, having that close to home, seeing that up close without just having ideas about it, opened them up. Thinking uh, of Dick Cheney, who has a daughter who's uh, in a gay marriage. He was opposed to gay marriage, so was his other daughter, Liz Cheney, the uh, present hero of the moment, I suppose. Um, He changed his tune. I don't know if Liz did, but he he changed. No, Liz did too, actually, Liz Cheney. uh, I read something where she realized that uh, she'd been wrong. Everybody, when it comes closer to home, can open their heart. It's just more difficult when you're not seeing it. Not everybody does. You hear about cases where religious fundamental parents completely disown their children. They haven't towed the line. They're an embarrassment. It's a sad thing. Coming back to Pema, even the most arrogant among us can be softened by the loss of someone dear. Yet it is so basic in us to feel that things should go well for us and that if we start to feel depressed, lonely, or inadequate, there's some kind of mistake or we've lost it. In reality, when you feel depressed, lonely, betrayed, or any unwanted feelings, this is an important moment on the spiritual path. This is where real transformation can take place. There's a woman uh, named Byron Katie who's written a few books worked with people, uh, says that any painful, unwanted feeling is like a compassionate alarm clock telling us, you're in the dream. Wake up. Once you, once you have that change, that when, when the, that feeling comes in to suddenly realize, no, what's here? Let me see what's going on. Let me try to experience this. That's such a dramatic change. And it's something we work our way up to. The first step with anything in practice is noticing. We have to see it. We can't do anything until we notice. If we're doing zazen and we're lost in thoughts, you have to notice. And then with the noticing, eventually we learn to let it go. It takes a while. It doesn't happen under our conscious direction. It just falls off. It's almost magical. If you see clearly, things begin to change. It's not the self that's doing it. It's the meaning of trust the practice. Notice, respond, grow. She says, 
as long as we're caught up in always looking for certainty and happiness rather than honoring the taste and smell and quality of exactly what is happening, as long as we're always running away from discomfort, we're going to be caught in a cycle of unhappiness and disappointment, and we will feel feel weaker and weaker. This way of seeing helps us to develop inner strength, and that's something you see in long-time practitioners. So confirming, uh, so heartening to run into an old friend who's been on this path for maybe some decades and just see the difference. So many people dealing with health problems now as they get older and to see the sense of equanimity, the acceptance that many people are able to find. And it isn't only among people who practice. You know, there's some people just have a healthy turn of mind. And there are many, many kinds of practice. Really one definition of Sangha, the Buddhist community, is a wider definition. Anyone who's working on themselves is a part of the Sangha, along with all of us. She says, what's especially encouraging is the view that inner strength is available to us at just the moment when we think we've hit the bottom, when things are at their worst. Instead of asking ourselves, how can I find security and happiness, we could ask ourselves, can I touch the center of my pain? Can I sit with suffering, both yours and mine, without trying to make it go away? Both yours and mine. How many people, when someone else is suffering, just want to tell them what to do. Oh, just fix it this way. Or want to somehow worm out from them. Oh, just feel better. Cheer up. It takes a certain kind of presence to sit with someone else's suffering. <clears throat> we learn to do it by sitting with our own. Can I stay present to the ache of loss or disgrace, disappointment in all its many forms, and let it open me? This is the trick. I think of the uh, program we were running before the pandemic got going called Hello Pain. Um, my wife set up the uh, sort of curriculum. Uh, we do it. We did it with uh, various groups over a course of I think eight weeks, meeting each week, doing a little zazen, doing a certain amount of uh, relaxation, body scan relaxation, and talking about this whole issue of opening up to discomfort and pain which, of course, is a huge issue for anybody who's got chronic pain, whether it's just age or cancer or uh, some sort of disease process. It's amazing how people from every walk of life and every strata of society can get it, can benefit from it. Uh, It was really a wonderful program. I hope it can start up again once uh, things open up more. Um, So rewarding to bring something out to uh, the community, to other people. So appreciated. Back to Pema. She says, it can also be helpful to shift our focus and look at how we put up barriers. In these moments, we can observe how we withdraw and become self-absorbed. 
become, become dry, sour, afraid. We crumble or harden out of fear that more pain is coming. In some old, familiar way, we automatically erect a protective shield and our self-centeredness intensifies. <clears throat> we, have to, we have to stay present to see this. That's why noticing is so helpful. For m- many of us, the problem is we begin to notice that we're dry, sour, afraid, and we're just frantically trying to fix that. No, 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 no. I'm not a good Zen student. It helps for a moment just to notice it, to be okay with it. She says, right on the spot, through practice, we can get very familiar with the barriers that we put up around our hearts and around our whole being. We can become intimate with just how we hide out, doze off, freeze up, And that intimacy, coming to know those barriers so well, is what begins to dismantle them. Amazingly, when we give them our full attention, they start to fall apart. Just having that curiosity about how it works. You know, there's a joke about a curious person. I'm not sure if it applies or not, but it's a great joke. So, (laughs) There were three guys three men, during the French Revolution who had been condemned to death. One of them was an Englishman and one was a Frenchman. and One of them was an engineer. And they asked the Englishman, uh, you know, okay, you're going on the block and would you like to face down or face up? And the Englishman said, I'm a man of courage, English. I'll face up and meet my fate. And so he did. They laid him in the block there. He's looking up, the blade up above him, and they pulled the rope, and the blade came hurtling down, and it stuck. Well, they only get one chance to execute someone, so he went free. They let him go. And they asked the French man, what would you like to do, up or down? He said, oh, no, I'm as good as any Englishman. <clears throat> We're people of courage. I will look up. And he does. And the same thing happens. They release the blade, and it binds, and he goes free. And so now it's the engineer's turn, and they ask him, and he says, well, yeah, I'd be interested in seeing that like those other guys did. Sure, yeah. And they set him up, and he's sitting there, and he goes, you know, I think I see the problem. (laughs) That's taking it too far. Pema says, when we're putting up the barriers and the sense of me as separate from you and the sense of me as separate from you gets stronger, right there in the midst of difficulty and pain, the whole thing could turn around simply by not erecting barriers, simply by staying open to the difficulty, to the feelings that you're going through, simply by not talking to ourselves about what's happening, that internal complaining. This is a revolutionary step. Becoming intimate with pain is the key to changing at the core of our being, staying open to everything we experience, letting the sharpness of difficult times pierce us to the heart, letting these times open us, humble us, and make us wiser and more brave. Let the difficulty transform you, and it will. In my experience, we just need help in learning how not 
to run away. <clears throat> well, there's more, but I have more as well, and I'm going to move along. Let uh, Rumi have a word here, the, uh, the Sufi poet. He said, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The th dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Somewhere it's said, being a Buddhist is being grateful to see your karmic hindrances arise. <clears throat> because when they arise, we can work with them. It's really cultivating this healthy attitude towards our lives and towards our practice. It's an attitude of confidence. We're no longer trying to shut out the stuff we don't like, and so we can be confident. Everything that comes up, as Roshi Kaplan used to say, it's grist for the mill. We can have an interest in it. There's so much we begin to learn when we change the way we operate. Our difficulties teach us things. <clears throat> and we learn to relax. This relaxation is really a foundation of zazen, deep zazen. mind can't let go completely as long as we're physically tense. <clears throat> There's a little passage I want to read from Sheng Yen. It's a talk he gave at a session at a meditation retreat talking about relaxation. This is fairly radical. Uh, the, the section is titled Acting Like a Good-for-Nothing says, during the interviews, I have learned that some people are still very tense, still struggling with their meditation method. There are those who might have sat well for a few sessions, but the good feeling has not come back, and they search for it in vain. They feel pressed for time, and their mental states have become more harried, impatient, and tense. I've used many metaphors to explain that if you want to arrive quickly, you'll never get there but many of you are still making trouble for yourselves, looking for pain to suffer. Buddhist practice is polishing your patience and forging your determination. When you demand peace of mind, your mind is not at peace. To deal with these afflictions, you need to move the firewood out from under the pot. This means not caring at all, acting as if nothing were happening, feeling that there is no harm in being a good-for-nothing. The very process of the meditation retreat is itself the result. All you have to do is to sit for seven days, 
If you do it well, that is a result. And if you do it badly, that is also a result. It's all valuable experience. Don't have your heart set on doing well. Just keep your mind on the meditation method. Don't get upset about oblivion or scattered thoughts, pain, numbness, aches, itches. Let it all happen. If the sky falls, pay no attention. It's counterintuitive. It's so hard to do. But it's so encouraging to realize everything we need is constantly presented to us. Our refuge isn't some safe place away from our troubles. Our refuge is our own openness, our presence in this moment, whatever's going on. It's not safety, it's awareness. Awareness, awareness, awareness. When that becomes the flavor of our lives, everything changes. Ramana Maharshi said, by whatever path you go, you have to lose yourself in the one. One, just this. Sound of the fan. Little breeze. A bead of sweat. Okay, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. (laughs) 